I was born and raised in Lancaster County. My last name is Oberholzer. I have a beard. My favorite spice is browned butter. I have eaten pig stomach and cow's tongue. So yes, over the course of my lifetime, I have been asked many times if I am Amish. I've also been asked if I am Amish. I am neither. But I'm very familiar with some of the quaintitudes of being from Pennsylvania Dutch country, which certainly includes some very odd words. Here are some favorites, which, which may be familiar to some of you who have your own Pennsylvania Dutch heritage or, or maybe are connected to some of the local Amish community. Rooch. Rooch. Like, hey kids, please sit, sit still. Stop rooching around. Schuslik. Similar to rooch. Hey kids, would you settle down? Stop being so schuslik. Doplik. As in, he is so doplik, he's always tripping over himself. One of my dad's favorites, Mox Nix. Literally, it means makes nothing. It, it's used to communicate that whatever's being discussed doesn't matter to me. Eh, Mox Nix. Maybe my all-time favorite, Verhutzt. Verhutzt, which means that things are all mixed up and disorganized. Like, I was trying to find the coupon for Wendy's in my car, but I had all my papers and receipts and stuff all Verhutzt, so I couldn't find it. As a Lancastrian Oberholzer, I heard all of these expressions regularly in my childhood. You didn't know you were going to get a Pennsylvania Dutch lesson today, did you? Well, my grandfather, who passed away several years ago, had an odd expression that I think may have been a part of the, the local Pennsylvania Dutch vernacular that was so familiar to him. I can only hear this short little expression in his Lancaster County accent. Two words, which he used like a filler. It didn't really have specific context or meaning, at least not that I could tell, it was how he ended a story or responded to somebody else's anecdote. Two words, I hope. Except he didn't say, I hope. He said, I hope. It was like that second word had two syllables. I hope. I always thought this expression was an odd idiosyncrasy of my grandfather and his culture roots. But I've been wondering lately, given our focus on hope, if it wasn't also underscored a bit by the depth of his faith in Jesus. As, as we've spent weeks now leaning into the great gift of hope that is available, available to us as Christ followers, I've been pondering my grandfather's quirky little phrase, and I've been wondering if I ought to allow the words I hope or I hope to fill in the gaps in my conversation and in my heart and in my mind. Indeed, I do hope. I hope in Christ. But to what end? For what purpose? Hope, what is it good for? We've spent the past several weeks in this Hope Initiative sermon series digging into various aspects of what it means to be a people of hope, making room for hope, leading toward hope. Today we're going to talk about taking initiative, about responding to the hope that we have in Christ. Hope is something we can choose, something we can prioritize, something we can pursue in some sense a destination, but it's also a catalyst for what we can then do as a community, a church family, the body of Christ, what we can do because of the hope we have. So let's dive into a, a chunky passage of Scripture, the beginning of Romans 12. Feel free to turn in your Bible or on your smartphone to Romans 12 or simply read along on screen as we'll be reading verses 1 through 13 of Romans 12. If you've been tracking with us recently, the tail end of Romans has become familiar territory as we've returned each week to Romans 15, 13. We're going to back it up just a few chapters, beginning in Romans 12.1. Here's what we read. Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. 
This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Now let's begin our, our reflections with the word, therefore. As I was taught many years ago, the word therefore in Scripture should be a natural prompt for us to ask, what is the therefore therefore? It indicates a pivot point, that what follows is based on what precedes it. In this case, this is the pivot point for all of Romans. The first 11 chapters of Romans, some of the most theologically dense and spiritually profound words in the entire Bible, those first 11 chapters are doctrine and theological groundwork. Romans 12 pivots to the so what portion that is common in Paul's letters, the ethical instruction, the practical implications of the theology. You may remember from our sermon series through Ephesians this past summer, the first three chapters of Ephesians were theology and doctrine. The final three chapters of Ephesians were ethics, practical instructions for living in light of that doctrinal framework. And you want to guess which book in the New Testament contains the word hope most frequently? Yeah, it's Romans. It's Romans. 14 times. Again, there's a reason why Romans 15, 13 has been the foundational verse in this series. In the theological section of Romans, we see hope in chapters 4, 5, 8, and 11. And then, therefore, because of that hope, in light of that hope, in response to that hope, what should we then do? How should we then live? We are called to be hopeful people, invited to be filled with hope, but hope is not the end game. Hope is the catalyst for our life in Christ. Now, many of you are probably familiar with those first two verses of Romans 12. They're very popular, and rightfully so. Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. These are verses that are found on, on mugs and on t-shirts and journals. Those are powerful words calling us, in light of our understanding of who God is and who we are, as thoroughly explained all through Romans 1 through Romans 11, to commit ourselves fully, completely in body, mind, and spirit to the transforming work of God, to worship Him properly. That's good stuff. But I want to focus on the rest of this passage today in two major sections. Verses 3 through 8 serve as one of several places throughout his letters where Paul talks about us, the people of God, followers of Jesus. He describes us as a body. So let's spend a few minutes talking about that instructive image 
of the church as the body, the body of Christ. Now that image points to the central theme that that Paul explicitly emphasizes in these various passages about us functioning as a body. Here's maybe one way we could summarize this theme. Unity, unity as a body. If we are a body informed by and infused with hope in Christ, then unity should be the natural expression of being that body. That's how bodies work. I've been reading a book about the American West, about the Mexican-American War of the 1840s, about the conquest of New Mexico and California. And without getting into any of the gory details here, let me just say that the American West in those early years was not a good place to be if you wanted to keep your body all attached together in one unit. There was a lot of dismemberment, and that invariably led to a lot of dying. The human body, we we, we know and understand, was meant to be kept united, all of the parts, still attached and fully functioning. Now, when I preached a message a number of years ago about being the body, discouraging any of us from being a severed toe, my dear brother Carl Aronson, who I miss greatly since his passing a few years ago, well, Carl came up to me after the service to show me his missing finger, which I believe was blown off in a gun accident or something of that sort. I believe Carl wanted to show me with a wink that some body parts are expendable. But hey, We understand analogies, even biblical analogies, fall apart at some point. But understand this, Carl did admit that even though he had figured out how to live without that finger, all things being equal, he would have preferred if it were still there, still attached. The unity, the connectedness of the body of Christ is its ideal and intended reality. Indeed, we've all been given a part to play, a particular task to perform as an expression of our unique place as part of the body of Christ. Why did God inspire Paul to write about the different spiritual gifts that constitute our life together as a body? Not only in Romans 12, but also in 1 Corinthians 12 that I preached on several years ago, Ephesians 4 that Pastor Seth preached on just this past year. What, did we get this idea from the Department of Redundancy Department? No, no. These ideas are repeated in Scripture when they're important enough to warrant repetition. The things that I really want my children to understand, I repeat them over and over again. Never eat the yellow snow. Never eat the yellow snow. Never eat the yellow snow. So God, through Paul, repeated again and again that we are the body of Christ. We all have a part to play. And we only function well as a body when we all do what we are uniquely called and created to do. So let's clarify a few things that we can easily get wrong whenever we talk about the parts of the body of Christ. This list of roles in Romans 12 is not exhaustive. Prophesy, serve, teach, encourage, give, lead, show mercy. These are all spiritual gifts, but they are not all of the spiritual gifts. Interestingly, this list is different from the list in 1 Corinthians 12, which is different from the list in Ephesians 4, which is different from the list in 1 Peter 4. Were the New Testament writers confused? Did they not compare notes sufficiently enough? No, no, no. The point is that the possible expressions of gifting the the parts that we are invited to play as members of the body, they are as diverse as we are. You might see your natural fit among the list of prophesying, serving, teaching, encouraging, giving, leading, and showing mercy. If so, do it. As a recipient of hope, that is your responsibility in sharing that hope through your gifts and talents and unique contributions. But if you don't see yourself among that list, well, there are countless other ways to love and share hope. We don't need to try to squeeze into a preformed template 
of what part we think we should play or what part we ought to play. If my toe said, I think I'd like to be a nose, well, I would be one funny-looking toe-faced dude. And I wouldn't be able to breathe or smell properly. And unless I had a functional peanut toe, I wouldn't be able to walk straight. I need my toes to do their thing and my nose to do its thing for this body to walk right and to sniff right. Whether you're an ear or an elbow or an esophagus or a eustachian tube in the body of Christ, you only need to be that thing. And be that thing while keeping our eyes on God, not on ourselves. Our contributions as a member of the body of Christ are ultimately about, about how God desires us to be bearers and sharers of hope, not something that we hoard, but something that we distribute to others. Alliance pastor and author A.W. Tozer says it this way, Our gifts and talents should also be turned over to Him. They should be recognized for what they are, God's loan to us, and should never be considered in any sense our own. Let's hold our gifts with open hands, acknowledging that they are God's, not ours. Now let's press into a related point. There are no insignificant or uber-significant parts in the body of Christ. This is so much easier to affirm in the abstract than it is to practice in real life. The human inclination is always to rank order things and assign more or less value to people based on our evaluation of their external contribution or worth. I'm an Amazon reviewer, so my instinct is to rate my spiritual gifts or your spiritual gifts. Oh, oh, that's a five-star gift. I love that one. That other one? Eh, three stars. That's kind of meh. This is not the kingdom way. This is not the way of God. It's not what we read in Romans 12. Verse 3 read this way, Do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment. For those of us who are inclined towards pride, that's a critical reminder of how to view ourselves. Now, we don't need to look far for examples of this practice gone wrong. We don't need to search very long for, for Christian leaders who got too big for their britches and thought that the basic tenets of, of decency and respect and love for others somehow did not apply to them. Many of us continue to process the abuse that has been uncovered in the life of Robbie Zacharias, a hero and mentor to many of us. How do things get so sideways for someone so gifted, so empowered by the Spirit of God. And I still believe that to be true. But isn't the downfall of many, isn't it arrogance? Pride comes before the fall. I don't think Ravi's primary issue was abuse of power, or deceit, or infidelity. The primary issue was a pride issue, which I think we can often see most clearly with hindsight. I would suggest that naming a Christian organization after a living human is maybe always a bad idea. Does it not create the illusion that this is one of God's special ones, one uniquely identified as superior and worthy of particular admiration, and from that vantage point of thinking more highly of himself than he ought, then the dominoes fall from there. And the damage, the wounding, the abuse, the shame to the cause of Christ, that all follows. Now this story and so many others like it should horrify us. Sin is ugly, but it probably shouldn't shock us. Romans 12, 3 is the foundational corrective measure instructing us to think of ourselves with sober judgment, not more highly than we ought. When we miss that, and many of us often do, we are prone to all sorts of sin. Because we stop fulfilling the part in the body of Christ which we were designed to fulfill, 
and we instead start making it about us. Christ is the head of his body, and we must make sure that our hope is attached to his headship, never our own or the headship of anyone else. As we acknowledge how often we get this wrong, I want to take just a minute to specifically mention a few folks in our church family who've gotten it right. Over the last two weeks, we've been celebrating formal leadership, even as Pastor Aaron has invited all of us to think of ourselves as leaders in some way, as those who influence others for the cause of Christ. And what a gift it is to have such strong elected leaders among us to help provide direction and guidance and discernment and shepherding and care for our church family. But there are so many others serving and leading in less prominent, less official ways. I want to acknowledge a few folks who've served faithfully in our church family for years, behind the scenes, to no applause and to no acclaim. Martha Horner has faithfully prepared all of the communion elements that our church family has used each and every month for years. Rich and, and Sue Kutch have led our coffee ministry for years. Dick Straw has served as an usher and a team leader at our first service for years. And each of these folks, faithful servants, have decided to step away from those ministries, having sensed that they have completed that particular task, that season of ministry, that the Lord invited them to do as their part in the body of Christ. Now, none of them ask to be mentioned publicly, and I do so with the knowledge that Martha will probably give me the stink eye the next time I see her. None of these folks served for acclaim or glory. They certainly didn't think of themselves more highly than they ought. They simply served and loved and led and cared for our church family as they were gifted and willing and able to do. What a beautiful example they have each set for all of us to follow. And now it's time for some new folks to step into those same serving roles to fulfill the work of those parts of the body. I love these words of 19th century theologian Charles Hodge. Real honor consists in doing well what God calls us to do and not in the possession of high offices or great talents. Doing well what God calls us to do. Just that. It is that simple. That's our honorable response to the hope that we have in Jesus, to do well what God calls us to do. One final thought on this section about spiritual gifts in the body of Christ is that we can undervalue our gifts as easily as we can overvalue them. Most of us probably have an inclination in one direction or the other on that continuum. Are you more inclined to think more highly of yourself than you ought? Or are you more inclined to think more lowly of yourself than you ought? Because while it's a mistake to think that we're a big deal and should be the focal point of God's mission or of God's people, it's just as erroneous to think that we are worthless and have nothing to contribute. While we may be an ear, an elbow, or an esophagus, none of us is eye gunk, right? We all have something meaningful to contribute to the body of Christ for his glory alone. Not surprisingly, I love how C.S. Lewis writes about this in a letter to a friend. Here's what Lewis says. I would prefer to combat the I'm special feeling, not by the thought I'm no more special than anyone else, but by the feeling everyone is as special as me. In one way, there's no difference, I grant, with both, for both remove the speciality, but there is a difference in another way. The first might lead you to think, I'm only one of the crowd like anyone else. But the second leads to the truth that there isn't any crowd. No one is like anyone else. All are members, organs in the body of Christ, all different and all necessary to the whole and to one another, each loved by God individually, as if it were the only creature in existence. I think it's helpful and clarifying to think of ourselves 
with sober judgment, to view our role as a special one among all of the other special ones, each of us invited to be and to love and to share hope in exactly the way God created us to do so, using precisely the gifts he gave to each of us, all as a part of this beautiful, complex thing we call the body of Christ. Well, how do we ever get that right? Let's look for a few minutes at the final section of Romans 12 we read earlier, verses 9 through 13. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Now, we talked about the earlier section as describing unity as a body. These verses could be summarized this way, unity through love. Indeed, that phrase, love must be sincere, from verse 9, that launches this final section. I read that as a reminder that love cannot be fake or forced or artificial. Love is only love when it is real and authentic, when it is sincere. Sincere meaning genuine, honest, truthful, earnest. That kind of sincerity, that's kind of countercultural. We live in a society that has a fairly high esteem for the generic idea of love, but isn't it so often a, a flimsy, flabby, fake kind of love? Look, we can actually connect the need for sincere love to this earlier notion of pursuing our gifts and talents for the purposes of advancing the kingdom of God. We're surrounded by false messages that we tell each other and, and that we promote publicly under the guise of love. But it's not love, it's, it's a culture of well-intentioned lying. Listen, who among us hasn't heard someone somewhere say, maybe we've even nodded our head along with them, you can be whatever you want to be as long as you dream high enough and work hard enough. Friends, that is rubbish. It's utter nonsense. There are certain things, many things, maybe even most, thing, most things that each of us were not created to do. We have different gifts and abilities, and that means different limitations and liabilities. Speaking honestly, out of sincere love, can help to discern one from the other. I can do a few things that Kate does not do well, like catch and throw random, pointy, awkward, and semi-dangerous objects from one side of a room to another. It has taken me a few years to understand that she does not enjoy when I throw a cheese grater or a burning candle or a crying child across the room at her. I, I'm still learning this lesson. That, that especially the catching end of it, that is not her gift. And there are many things that she can do that I cannot. Like remember specific words. It's a curse of mine. I'm convinced you'd be amazed how often this comes into play. Preemptive pun, fully intended. Years ago, Kate, as a trained and formerly professional actor, she was organizing a children's theater performance, and she needed a male actor for a small sort of whimsical part. And well, I don't mind being in front of groups of people. I can be silly, and so I volunteered. Now here's the rub. When you do theater stuff, real plays and such, there's a thing called a script. There are particular words that you are supposed to say, ideally in a particular order. It's supposed to be the same every time. Apparently the other actors are counting on you to say the right words in the right order at the right time so they know it's their turn. I was a colossal failure. I spent hours and hours, or at least minutes and minutes, studying that script, and I could not remember my few lines. 
The performance date was approaching and I wasn't getting any better. I was interrupting our rehearsals with outbursts of rage when I'd forget a line. It was humiliating. It was infuriating. Eventually, Kate and her theatrical brilliance came up with the needed solution. On the back of numerous props and strategically placed music stands all around the stage where we were performing, she taped pieces of paper on which were written all of my lines. So when I inevitably forgot what I was supposed to say, I just looked down at my cheat sheets, and it was brilliant of her. An acknowledgement of my inability to be whatever I wanted to be. And this same struggle impacts other aspects of life. If you ask my kids what they think of my singing, they'll have many comments to make, I'm sure, but one will probably be, Daddy struggles with the words. That's how we've explained to the children in the, in the middle of a very familiar song that we've sung a thousand times. I will often stop singing and just start humming or at least scatting. Yes, Daddy struggles with the words. See, love, among many things, must be sincere, which is to be willing to acknowledge to one another, hey, sister, I don't think that's your thing. So, brother, I think your gifting is probably in another area. It's Kate saying, "Hon, I don't think we're going to do a play together ever again. How good are we in the church at having those conversations? In a culture, in a Christian subculture, that often worships at the throne of being only positive and encouraging, to the point of being completely insincere, we are called to love each other well enough to, as an act of sincerity, tell the truth. And now, of course, I expect to receive a, a steady stream of emails over the next 12 hours, elucidating every misstep that I took during this sermon. Hey, I want to be strong enough to receive that feedback if it's given in a spirit of love. In fact, one of my friends here at the church, Ben, he has that conversation with me often. Now, he tells me what he thinks I might have gotten right, absolutely. And we talk about our shared affection for bacon. But then he says, hey, that thing you said, that didn't make any sense. Or that, that other point, that was a very weak reflection on an important complicated issue. And he's usually right. Not always. I don't want him to get cocky, but he's usually right. And because I know his feedback is sincere and ultimately from a posture of love, I receive it and I get better. Now for any of the, of the earnest truth tellers who are salivating at this point, just remember that this kind of honest, sincere feedback loop usually works best in the context of a trusting, established relationship. I'm going to hear someone's honest assessment of my gifts best if I know them well and know that they're speaking out of love, not out of condemnation or critique. That's the differentiation between a critical eye and a critical spirit that Pastor Aaron mentioned last week. But within the safety of friendship, let's make sure our love is sincere enough to say uncomfortable and even hard things to help us collectively to better live out our calling within the body. Now what else is tucked into those verses? Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Oh, do we need to hear that reminder today. Now, we live in a world that loves evil and rejects good because the human heart loves evil and rejects good. Now, I don't think that's a uniquely 21st century American thing. Again, let me roll it back to mid-19th century New Mexico, where the Christians of that day would go to church on Sunday and then have a scalping party on Monday. What the what? Humanity in every era in every culture, has embraced evil and rejected good. That reality is timeless. It's just that the specific expression of evil that was embraced and the particular form of good that was rejected at any given time, that certainly shifts from era to era, from culture to culture. As I continue to read and learn about human history, I don't believe that our present reality is any more broken than any other time or place. 
I do believe strongly that the church, as an act of love, has a responsibility in this day and age to proclaim the difference between good and evil, to embrace good and to hate evil. I just don't believe that's unique to us. That has always been the responsibility of the people of God, at least since Paul wrote to the church in Rome, as one expression of being hope bearers, to point people to the good and to dissuade them from wickedness. When we see oppression and injustice and callousness and indifference and and dishonesty and immorality and abuse, let's call it the evil that it is. And when we see love and compassion and justice and mercy and integrity and fidelity, let's call it the good that it is. That's one way that a hope-filled people can love each other well, with sincerity. And this passage keeps on going. This call to unity through love. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Now let's settle into that very last phrase. Practice hospitality. Hospitality. The Apostle Paul, the great and authoritative mouthpiece of God, the most profoundly thorough biblical writer in the most substantive of his letters, concludes a section of instruction to the people by, by saying, just practice hospitality by sharing with those in need. How often do we make life more complicated than it needs to be? At the end of the day, there is a purity and a simplicity to much of what we read in the Bible. Andy Stanley has summarized the entire ethical teaching of the New Testament in this way. What does love require of me? Just do that thing. Do the next right thing. So hospitality, that's it? That's the culmination of today's message? Yes. That's a simple way to explain the unity born out of hope, expressed in love, that God desires from His people. And that hospitality still allows for all sorts of different expressions of our gifts and personalities and resources. Hospitality is a word that gives us introverts the yips. So we're all expected to invite dozens of people to have dinner in our homes on like a weekly basis. No, that is one, but only one expression of what hospitality can look like. For the extroverts and entertainers among us, throw a party at your house as often as you'd like. Share that way. For whatever it's worth, we haven't had anyone in our home who didn't have the last name Overholzer since last February. We're going to need a refresher on how to, how to host people in our home. But what an encouragement it has been to watch dozens and dozens of you, longtime members of our church family, and some whose names I don't even know, jumping on board to extend hospitality to guests through our partnership with Out of the Cold over the next two weeks. Church family, you have crushed it. I think we have just about every single spot filled a demonstration that we are collectively a people who are responsive to the hospitality calling of the body of Christ. But how you love and how you share with those in need and how you practice hospitality and how you participate as a member of the body of Christ and, and how you express your spiritual gifts, that's for you to sort out with the Lord in community while inviting others to speak truth into that discerning process. That might be one of the reasons why Paul also called us to be faithful in prayer. That we might invite God to lead us by His Spirit, to know how to love and to share and to be hospitable. That can happen through the official ministries of the church for sure. We've got lists and online forms where we can see areas of need, places where we need help and, 
and volunteers in, in children's ministry and media ministry and hospitality ministry and youth ministry to, to support and advance the formal organized activity of this church family. Our hope initiatives are an attempt to put even more specific opportunities in front of you, but, but it can also be as simple as a conversation with a neighbor, an invitation to a lonely colleague to chat over a cup of hot chocolate or, or maybe even coffee if you've lost your sense of taste, a, a phone call to an elderly person with, with health concerns, a kind word to a friend at school, a simple gift for a teacher or a, a friend or a family member. When we are truly joyful in hope, as verse 12 says, sincere love and generous sharing and warm hospitality just naturally pour out of us. When rightly attuned to the work of Jesus on the cross and the victory of Jesus through the resurrection that we will celebrate in the coming weeks, the church, the body of Christ, has always been a people who are known for this way of living. Because of him, we are filled with hope that motivates and initiates and stirs us to love well. Would that be true of us in increasing measure in the coming days? Join me as we pray. Heavenly Father, we come today grateful for the hope that we have in Christ. We thank you for the, uh, the opportunity we've had in these months and really over the course of this year to lean into that hope, to embrace that hope. But we do that in such a way that we would not keep it to ourselves, but instead that, that the hope that we have in Jesus would spill out of us in countless ways, that we would be a people that share the hope that we have with others, and that we do that ultimately for your glory and for our joy and for the sake of the world. We thank you and pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.